Hello, and welcome back to the Previously On podcast. Today, we'll be wrapping up our third season of the podcast by concluding our in-depth look at Avatar The Last Airbender's third and final book, Fire. My name's Brandon Berger. I'm Evan Muse. And I'm Maxwell Anderson. And together, we're our own sort of Team Avatar. We're very excited to conclude our conversations on what we can easily say has been an influential television series for all of us. For our 29th episode of the podcast, we'll be taking a look at the final four chapters of Book 3. Together, chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21 make up Sozin's Comet. Previously on Avatar. Here's some more information about Book 3, Chapter 18, The Phoenix King. It's the 18th episode of the third season and is the 58th official episode of the show. The first part of Sozin's Comet was written by series creator Michael Dante DiMartino and was directed by Ethan Spaulding. Here's a short synopsis of Chapter 18. Aang makes the decision to fight Fire Lord Ozai after Sozin's Comet passes, forcing Zuko to reveal his father's plan to burn the entirety of the Earth Kingdom using its power. With this new knowledge, the gang begin a fierce training regiment to prepare for Ozai, while Aang follows a different path. Meanwhile, Ozai passes the title of Fire Lord on to Azula, while also declaring himself the Phoenix King. Here's some more information about Book 3, Chapter 19, The Old Masters. It's the 19th episode of the third season, and is the 59th official episode of the show. The second part of Sozin's Comet was written by Aaron Ehas and was directed by Giancarlo Volpe. Here's a short synopsis of Chapter 19. On Aang's separate journey, he seeks guidance from his past lives and ultimately gains a tool he can use to defeat the Fire Lord. Meanwhile, Zuko and the gang consult June and her Shirshu to attempt to track down Uncle Iroh, ultimately succeeding in finding him at the outer wall of Ba Sing Se. There they meet their old masters and await the arrival of Sozin's Comet. Here's some more information about Book 3, Chapter 20, Into the Inferno. It's the 20th episode of the third season and is the 60th official episode of the show. This third part of Sozin's Comet was written by series creators Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Konitzko and was directed by Joaquim Dos Santos. Here's a short synopsis of Chapter 20. Zuko and Katara face off against an increasingly unhinged Azula at her Fire Lord coronation. Sokka, Toph, and Suki board a Fire Nation airship and attempt to take them down before they begin their onslaught of the Earth Kingdom, and Aang finally begins his confrontation with Fire Lord Ozai. Here's some more information about Book 3, Chapter 21, Avatar Aang. It's the 21st episode of the third season and is the 61st official episode of the show. This fourth and final part of Sozin's Comet was written by series creators Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Konitzko and it was directed by Joaquim Dos Santos. The entirety of Sozin's Comet premiered as the concluding event to the series on July 19th, 2008. Here's a short synopsis of Chapter 21. The conflicts begun by the different members of the gang wrap up in this concluding episode. An accidental strike by Ozai opens Aang's previously blocked chakra, and Aang is able to enter the Avatar state and gain the upper hand against Ozai. Sometime later, Team Avatar celebrates their victory together at Iroh's tea shop in Ba Sing Se, while Aang and Katara share a final embrace under the setting sun. So, what were your thoughts on the series finale? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I One thing that I noticed right off the bat was, as I'm watching the first part, the first episode of this four 
uh, the the four episode finale. I like blinked, and all of a sudden we're at the end when Aang kind of goes off on the on what we find out is the lion turtle. That first episode is so fast. Yeah. yeah. Did did either of you happen to? I know when you watch a show on Netflix, and if you're watching like binge watching, they stop showing you the previously on like the intro recap. Did you watch the recap for this uh, episode or for these four? I did not. I skipped it. I started it up. Nickelodeon screamed its name at me <laughs> and blew my eardrums out. And so I rapidly clicked the skip intro. <laughs> Was there something there that we that we missed or that they pointed out or? No, it's it's just a phenomenal intro to the. Yeah. Yeah, it's mm. I mean with the music swelling and the mm -hmm. clips that they take out, it just it's perfect. Um and I just thought since our podcast name is you know, taken <laughs> from the the intro. Yeah, that um, Roku sounder. Yeah, yeah. They they do it way better than we ever could with our <laughs> summaries. <laughs> <laughs> so shall we begin where it begins with the beach and the, the sand sculptures? Yes. I love those sand sculptures. I did I did as well. I think it's really cool how when we first see Toph trying to bend in the sand, you know, she's super intimidated by it. Mm -hmm. And I think because this is when they're in the desert in, in book two, she talks about not being able to see very well and things feeling fuzzy. Right. But then in this series finale in the first episode here, she just like twists her feet and creates, recreates bossing say in tremendous detail. I thought that that was such a cool, cool moment of growth for Toph that we wouldn't have necessarily thought about because she doesn't really need to be sand bending. Like there's no need for it for her. Right. But just a really cool growth moment for her. And I like to, you have to imagine going around bossing, say she could see like the whole city, right? Like it's not dependent on what's visually available to her. Right. So of course she would sort of have this architectural map of it in her brain to recreate. Yep. I also like Aang's little anime face when he dips in, to look at the tiny Bosco and Earth King. <laughs> so funny. There are a lot of those faces in these episodes. I was, yeah. I was just going to say that too. The one that I'm thinking of is, I think it's with Suki and Katara. Yes. Happens later. <laughs> um, I got a kick out of that too. Just some funny, some really funny, again, funny moments that slice through these high stakes, high pressure situations. Airbending slice. <laughs> <laughs> Avatar State. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I, I do like that the gang gets a little bit of a beach episode, even though it's interrupted by Zuko, who's already had his beach episode, so he right. doesn't have time for that. Right. <laughs> um, what did you think of Zuko's lesson? Like, so they, Zuko tries to, you know, blast down Aang and confront him. And at the end, he's like, trying to teach you a lesson. <laughs> I, I was like very reminiscent lesson of one that you learned in your childhood and that you are very resentful of. So interesting that you right. take this tack to, to teach Aang a lesson. <laughs> no, I agree with that too. And I also found it weird because the episode opens up with Aang and Zuko doing some firebending and some practice. I think Zuko is still a little caught up in his head about using his anger or, or challenging Aang to use anger to fuel his firebending. 
And he even kind of insults Aang a little bit to get him to firebend more. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I feel like even the show, or at least in this moment, the show doesn't know how to firebend without anger. Um, even though we are to assume that they, you know, got this knowledge from the dragons in the in the firebending mm-hmm. masters episode. Right. It was just a weird, weird thing. And then yeah, Max, to have Zuko kind of go off a little bit and chase them all down to try to instill some urgency in them was also a little weird. Um and it seemed it just felt a little out of place. Right. Based on what what all of the other characters were experiencing and, and kind of the fun, happy-go-lucky stuff that they were trying to do. And maybe that's mm-hmm. the point, but yeah, exactly. I don't know. I think it works because Zuko has this pivotal piece of information that he hasn't shared with everybody else. Yeah, right. So he's like, the stakes have never been higher. I'm not going right. to just let you enjoy your time. But um, it does seem like pulling him aside and communicating that concern would be more effective than, you know, <laughs> blasting him down. Although I think yep. it does teach him a good lesson. Like, the time it stops, Aang finally just stands up for himself, right? He has this really mm-hmm. cool, which I, I love when he goes, enough, and he does this little flip in the burning house and then twists his arm and blasts Zuko out the door um, yeah, or out good. the balcony. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's like, in this episode, we get to see Aang sort of pass his breaking point several different times, and it's mm-hmm. really refreshing for his character because, like you said, Brennan, um, whether Zuko's trying to like get him to show his anger or not, he does sort of break into this and you need to actually take this seriously. You need to um, go past this sort of timid airbender stance that you usually take. Right. I think the other thing I like in that moment is Zuko is hunting the avatar, chasing <laughs> after him and blowing fireballs. And everyone's like, oh, okay. I think mm-hmm. it it's a good highlight of his character growth and his acceptance into the group that people aren't like terribly alarmed by that. Right. Yeah, Sokka's more alarmed that he destroyed his Suki sculpture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I know we've talked about the theory of Sokka being the artist who who paints the mural at the beginning of the Legend of Korra. Mm-hmm. I will just say his art skills are so bad. Like <laughs> so bad. I, I I understand that there's potential for growth. And as an educator myself, I I see it oftentimes in my my kids, my students. But they are so bad. He has so much work to do before he <laughs> yeah. gets to that point. Like, holy hell, Sokka. And if I were Suki, I would have straight up smacked him. Like, I don't look like a <laughs> blubbering blob monster. What right. the hell? Uh I think she knows very certainly what he sees in his eyes, which is sweet. <laughs> Aw. Max, I'd like to hop back a little bit to your communication point because, wow, they all really failed to communicate some important stuff in this episode. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, I can't believe they weren't going to mention to Zuko this plan. Yeah, where was he? Like, when they were talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Zuko, do you want to go get some firewood? Okay, we're not going to fight the fire alert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this <laughs> that's, uh, that right? is probably like, exactly how it happened. Like, yeah. what? Because they knew Zuko would get mad at them. <laughs> the whole reason they kind of were forced to accept Zuko, at least a little bit, was because they needed a firebending teacher so that he could be ready before the comic comes. So, like, when did that change? I, I, yeah, it is kind of a bummer that we missed out on that. 
Mm-hmm. And I, like, I don't really blame Zuko in this moment for not telling them about, well, sort of, it's kind of weird that he didn't explicitly tell them about Ozai's plan, but I don't blame him because he didn't think it would matter, right? You're, you're going to have to confront him before the comet. That was always the plan. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, there, there is, it's sort of implied that Ozai is going to do a lot of really evil stuff, right? Right. Yeah, we've been ramping to that. We've just not fully understood exactly what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. We've just assumed that because he's the baddest man in the land that he's going to do <laughs> some baddest man in the land things. Right. And in fact, burn like a quarter of the land. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about that plan? So <laughs> so we get this flashback where he's like, yeah, let's burn it all and rise from the ashes. Um, what about the Fire Nation colonies in the Earth Kingdom? That's a good question. I imagine he doesn't care the same way Zuko had to speak up the first time in the war room. He's okay with sacrificing a few soldiers or Fire Nation folks. What about his his soldier, like his <laughs> army that is there? Like he has a a domestic and a like inner nation or yeah, I don't know what he's going to do. Like does he pull out those <laughs> soldiers or is he just forged earthing them? Well, and the, and the thing that would be the most odd about it is, okay, obviously that would not, that would not be able to have a lid kept on it as tightly as it is perceived. Like I can imagine that one of those generals who is in the war room probably has kids in the military. Probably some of them are in Max, like you were kind of talking about in the earth kingdom, right? First thing I'm doing is sending a messenger Hawk, like get, out. Get the f- yeah. out of there <laughs> before Sozan's Comet arrives or you will get burned to a crisp. Yeah. Or maybe there's something about like, I don't know, maybe there's something about the, the power they would get from Sozan's Comet that would keep them safe. I don't, I don't know. I'm just trying, fireproof. I'm doing an awful job. <laughs> yeah, they would make them fireproof. I'm doing an awful job at trying to justify why this would be something that Ozai would do. And I can't like... I don't know. I like to me all of these plans kind of seem dumb. You know, Ozai's plan to just burn everything, dumb. Aang's plan to fight the Fire Lord when the comet is here, when he's at his most powerful, while Aang doesn't have the Avatar state like unlocked at all anymore. It's like that's also a pretty dumb plan. I think the only fairly reasonable plan was to wait until we learn about what Ozai's gonna do. I don't know, it just seems I, I wish the show would have done more to to paint like how little hope I as a viewer had for our gang in this moment because mm-hmm. it, it kind of keeps this uplifting tone like oh yeah we can still do it but Ang Ang is Ang's chakra is blocked and and he can't access the Avatar state so he has to defeat Ozai in theory uh, a Sozin's comet powered Ozai not having mastered firebending or probably earthbending yet and no avatar state like he can't even be at his most powerful and yet he's supposed to be able to take him down i don't know okay and i we i think we should get all of this out now because i have a few other points like that um like when they are practicing the like the whole melon lord oh yeah amazing yeah amazing i love that but their plan there as well is to distract him so that Aang can come and make the final blow. Knowing that that's not really Aang's 
thing. Like that's not what Aang's about. So I was just kind of like, okay, if if you're doing it as a team, why does Aang need to deliver the final blow? Like I know this whole like destiny thing, only the Avatar can like bring balance. But if it's his group, like if it's his if it's his gang doing it, like writing out the justice, you'd think that you could rationalize it if like Sokka was the one to like do the blow or something. Right. I think in that moment, the only person who shouldn't would be Zuko. Right. Yeah. Okay. Like just from an like an optics. Because right. then it's gonna get out that Zuko killed his dad and blah blah blah. Nothing's gonna be different. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, I agree with you, Max, that if Team Avatar takes down Fire Lord Ozai, awesome, great. But if Zuko, as a part of Team Avatar, takes out the Fire Lord, then it's a little bit of a different optics. Yeah. I totally agree with you, though, in every other part of that. I do think, politically speaking, Aang is the best choice because in addition to being the Avatar, unfortunately, he has, like, no national connection at this point right there right. is no air nation right mm. so he's the most like independent of any sort of like political gain or influence from that kind of move that's true actually like if we take a deeper look into who is in our gang you have yeah the water tribe represented you have the Bayfongs, which is like yeah. an extremely powerful earth nation family um, that could look like a power grab right yeah no that's that's a good point um I was just, uh, yeah, I just thought, like, making him do it for the image yeah, is, I mean, like, okay. <laughs> you could also just tell people yeah. afterwards, yeah, <laughs> I Aang killed him. Say, yeah. like, <laughs> right. The Aang's posse killed him. Like, you don't right. need to really, yeah, yeah. Yes. But, right. no, but it's a good point. I didn't really think about the, the nuance yeah. of what each of them would represent if they had done that. I do find it interesting if Toph is supposed to be equal in power to both Ozai and an entire army of Fire Nation, and that's why she's like the Melon Lord. Why is she not going to like the big fight? <laughs> also, like you think about where the big fight happens, Toph could have been pretty useful. <laughs> yeah, it's rock pillars. <laughs> Instead, they put her on an airship, the worst place yep. you could put her. Yep. Oh, well. I guess they didn't know they'd be going up in the air, but... Yeah, if they could have grounded it, literally, from <laughs> where they were, yeah, yeah, she could have done it pretty easily, so... Well, though, and I will say, you know, I think at the beginning of it all, when they're formulating this this training regiment, I think they anticipate having everybody be able to fight the Fire Lord. Mm -hmm. I think it's only when... And this kind of transitions us very quickly through... Uh, these first like two and a half episodes here only when ang disappears do they all of a sudden think oh we have to still like do this but now it's without ang so what are we going to do right and then when they meet up with the old masters and they meet up with iroh specifically who kind of tells them of their plan in taking back bossing say and then challenges them to think of their own destiny right Destiny is a funny thing. You can make it your own. I don't remember what the line is, but then they, then Sokka at least formulates this other branch of the plan where they decide to take over a, an airship to then take out the airships while Zuko and Katara then have to splinter off and, and defeat Azula or go and confront Azula. So I think in this first episode, everybody's supposed to go fight the Fire Lord, 
but we forget that, okay, he's got these other airships. Okay, we also have to handle Azula because there's going to be a power vacuum in the Fire mm -hmm. Nation. Yeah. As soon as as soon as the the Fire Lord is taken out. Right. You know, there has to be somebody better than Azula to take mm -hmm. over. Yeah, because ostensibly what does taking out the Fire Lord do? Not Not a whole lot in regards to like their armies or their mission, that sort of thing. Right. If there's nobody to then step in. Right. It's Azula. Ooh. <laughs> Things <laughs> yeah. get bad quickly. And it's interesting that the, the group doesn't initially have that foresight and that it does take, it takes Iroh to basically splinter the group and have them all go and complete these other mini missions while Aang is continuing to prep for his fight with Ozai. Like it's... yeah. Again, things that things that we hadn't thought about that, of course, have to be taken care of as well. I I want to talk about Iroh's mission too, but I think we can save that for the next episode sure. discussion. So, um, one one scene that I really wanted to talk about was the because we don't really get in this in this first episode we get a lot of like good dialogue like huddles basically like team huddles, mm -hmm. and one of them takes place at night. Um, in the courtyard when they're all kind of discussing the plan and Aang finally kind of stands up for himself and, and, you know, shouts at the rest of them. This isn't a joke, Sokka. None of you understands the position I'm in. Aang, we do understand. It's just... Just what, Katara? What? We're trying to help. Then when you figure out a way for me to beat the Fire Lord without taking his life, I love to hear it. And I don't know. I just, I... I really like that they included this one and it, it's it, kind of heartbreaking because it's their last interaction. Like it's Aang and the gang's last interaction before the finale. Yeah, um, you're yeah. right. Because then they're all broken apart because then Aang disappears yeah. shortly after that. Yeah, that's kind of sad. And I know we talked about it uh, probably in a way earlier episode, but Aang <laughs> foreshadows his, <laughs> his, uh, how he's going to handle it. The glue yep. bending bit, what, taking away his <laughs> bending completely foreshadows <laughs> the finale so good i also love when he asks like do you really think that would work <laughs> mm -hmm. okay this this moment too also raises that ethical question would you go back in time and kill baby hitler but in this case it's baby ozai <laughs> they pull out like the picture of him yeah. Okay, so that like that dilemma has a name or paradox has a name. What is it called? And I'm not adding it to my the, Google history. The baby but Hitler paradox. <laughs> I'm traveler's dilemma. Maybe maybe that's what it is. Sounds good. It's canon. <laughs> <laughs> so, Max, would you travel back in time and kill baby Ozai? <laughs> uh I personally I would uh if I had a time travel device, no. <laughs> How about you guys? Would you murder a baby? <laughs> the, I've, I've heard an answer to this question that I really like, which is you go back in time and you give them like nurturing and care that would make them a better person growing up so that they don't do those things. I would kill the baby. With kindness. <laughs> we're cutting all this out. <laughs> no, we're keeping it in because you didn't hear what I said after, Max. Oh, shoot. I interrupted. Because you started laughing. I said, <clears throat> I would kill the baby 
with kindness. Oh, kindness. there we there, go. That's very important. <laughs> <laughs> it is very important. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I do. I mean, again, it, it gets into the whole conversation that not everybody in the Fire Nation is evil and not everybody who is evil in the show is from the Fire Nation exclusively. Like, you know, evil tendencies and evil behaviors can be conditioned and learned. Um, and in fact, I, I believe that they are, which then also means you can learn to do the opposite or learn compassion and kindness and, and all of these different things. Aang's decision to remain adamant about not killing the Fire Lord is so important because of that. Because even in, in those final moments, right before he almost does kill him, you know, he pauses and says, no, there has to be another way. Because in his mind, Aang is thinking there's still goodness in this person. You know, I don't know. It's, it's, ooh, that, that theme is, yeah. is just hard mm. to grapple with. Yep. I cannot wait to do an in-depth discussion of that last, that last. Oh, oh man. God, yeah. So good. I, I feel bad a little bit for Toph yeah. as we get towards the end here because... <laughs> She was really wanting that life-saving or life-changing field trip with Zuko. I know. And she never gets one. No, you can, like, see her shell harden in real time. Yeah. As she opens up and is vulnerable and takes that wall down and Zuko sort of shuts her down. Yep. You can see just that, like, hardening happening. Oh. And it's, like, heartbreaking. Because we Tragic. see in Korra how she sort of ends up. And she isn't very... She's kind of... Yeah. She's kind of crusty. <laughs> Maybe she didn't. Maybe that's what the writers are trying to tell us. Like Toph is Toph and she she can she can handle it. I don't know. I, I think a lot of times they have enforced that, but this is the the one moment I almost doubt that. Like mm -hmm. she's clearly got all of this stuff kind of built up. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna digress. What do you think Toph and Zuko's mini vacation would have been? I know in an earlier podcast episode we talked about what ours would be. Now we have to become Toph and Zuko and figure out what their mini vacation would have been. And let's okay. re let's remove the time parameter of Sosin's Comet is only a couple days away and just say that they legitimately get a mini vacation like everybody else. What would it be? Okay, I have an idea. I think they go see Toph's parents. Yep. I think maybe they go to like a fancy rich person dinner. Mm-hmm. And like deal with all the awkwardness of like sitting with their her parents and like talking about stuff. I I like that. I'm gonna modify it to be in the in the timeline of this. Toph just learns that the Fire Lord is gonna burn down the Earth Kingdom, and so it's a rescue mission to go save her Ooh. parents. Oh my God, that's brilliant. So it's like reversing because, you know, they protected Toph all her life and now she has to go protect them. Oh my God. Okay. I love that. That's incredible. Oh, oh there we you. go. I am for sale writers <laughs> of Avatar. <please>. <laughs> okay. And what if they don't want to leave? Like they're mm -hmm. very attached and maybe they're kind of in denial too. They're like, the guards will protect us. And so they're kind of like rebelling against Toph and she has to get them to do what she thinks is best for them. Yes. Reverse those roles. She'd be like, please. She'd metal bend some handcuffs. We're yeah. going. And that's <laughs> yeah. exactly how kidnap they would get out of it. Yeah, she, she would, would kidnap her parents. <laughs> oh. Oh, <laughs> how funny would that be, though, if like as part of their journey, they stumble across the two people who had captured Toph 
to bring her back. Mm-hmm. And they were still stuck in that metal cage. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 no, not dead, but barely alive. And then oh, Tom kind God. of goes and opens that and rescues them too. How funny would that be? <laughs> It would be ironic if the the parents were kidnapped in you know metal cages like they planned yeah. to kidnap Toph. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's good. I like that. <laughs> that's poetic. There's our D and D. One of you can be <laughs> Zuko, and one of you can be <laughs> Toph. We'll go mm. rescue her friends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> On the Toph train, I I like that Toph is the one that realizes both. Aang and Momo are missing, you know, at separate times in it. But it's it's amazing. I mean, like, it makes sense, right? She can sense everybody. But mm -hmm. it, just ironically, it is the blind person that realizes somebody is missing uh, yeah. both times. So, so good. I, I noticed how, like, chill Appa was in this moment. And that almost kind of bummed me out. Like, uh, Aang has disappeared off the face of the earth Momo. he's like yeah they're like not even spiritually present and appa's just chewing into some hay he's like oh what <laughs> well and about, i wonder if they are spiritually present hmm. and i wonder if appa can still feel his connection with those two which is why he remains calm i know when okay so now we're kind of dipping into the end of this episode right um zuko has a way to track down ang and Iroh, they go and they find June, the bounty hunter, which is a great return. Like, it's a great way to bring mm -hmm. this character back, I think, mm -hmm. because her character in the sheer shoe in general is a little bit of a one-off. It's a one-trick pony, right? But after, after the sheer shoe smells Aang's staff, June says, well, your friend doesn't exist. I don't know if there's something maybe about the way that lion turtles are that they kind of have this camouflaging thing because otherwise you'd think they're such large animals, right? And we learn later in the legend of Korra how uh, integral of a part they play in civilizations. Mm -hmm. um, that I wonder if as kind of uh, as civilization and humanity and these different nations and cultures stopped living on the lion turtles and then, ended up moving into the into the mainland areas if the lion turtles developed a way to kind of cloak themselves off or be hidden so that they didn't become hunted right i think it's odd that this is the first time in the whole series that we see a like physically see a live lion turtle with as big as they are mm -hmm. there's no way that this is the last one is it that's a good question i i get the sense especially with what June says that they're almost like another plane. Mm -hmm. sure. Like there's the real world, the spirit world and the lion turtles almost occupy their sort of own reality. Like an in-between or something. Yeah. Yeah. I can buy that. That does make a lot of sense. Sure. <laughs> it is also weird to me how confidently June says Aang doesn't exist. <laughs> like as well, this happened before. Yeah. 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 You're right. <laughs> yeah. That's true. <laughs> How many people get kidnapped by a lion turtle? Like? Right. <laughs> we also see in this sequence, we see the return of the cave jive theme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is super cool. I don't know why they used it here, but it, I mean, it fits the, it fits like the bar mood and the bar aesthetic. Like it's mm -hmm. just very energetic. Um, And I know we talked about this 
in an earlier episode, but we see the Ryu knockoff again. Yes, um, he's there. When they're yeah, he's back at the bar trying to arm wrestle June still and losing. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I also love when June sees Zuko, she says, Where's your creepy grandpa? <laughs> yes. Shout out to that one writer. <laughs> Ian Wilcox. I wrote his name down. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe June appreciated Iroh's creepiness in that episode. Eh. <laughs> I tend to doubt it. It is. I think we talked about that in the Bots of the Water Tribe episode that June and her sheer shoes sort of break the world a little bit. Yep. Like, yeah. If you're trying to track someone, why would you ever do anything else but have a sheer right. shoe? Um, and so it is nice to like that they kind of acknowledge that of, oh, we can't find someone. Better go here. Yep. Yep. And because it had been so long, again, since we'd seen June or the Sheer Shoe, we, again, for, kind of forget about it a little bit. And then the moment we see them again, we're like, oh, of course. Wait, why didn't they use this all the yes. time? And you're like, well, if they would have, then this would be a, this show would be one and a half seasons long. Okay, a f just a few quick other things um, that I had for this episode. Uh, one really quick one. What? Okay, I know it's for 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 humor, but what is the Sokka trying out that Appa ate Momo thing? Like, I I've never understood that as like a scene <laughs> to include in this. I I guess I didn't think too much about it because I just found it so funny. I always was just kind of like, what? Why? Because <laughs> if he's trying to be, because he's he's serious. Like, if he's trying to be Sokka and goofy, okay, but also sort of the wrong time. But if he's serious and he crawls into Appa's mouth, it's just a weird, weird scene to me. I agree. Maybe he <laughs> learned some bad mouth boundaries from Momo. <laughs> it's a full circle for the character. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's Momo's always very curious about people's mouths. So Sokka's yeah. been worried that he's going to do that to Appa and get Yeah, maybe it, it was an accident. Maybe he doesn't think Appa did it maliciously. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I like Momo's that. rooting around in there. Yes. Okay, that's how I'm taking it from now yeah. on. I like that. It's an accidental gulp. Yeah. Uh -oh. <laughs> and then the only other thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit that's been sort of on my mind that I've only thought about since rewatching this more critically is the um, the failures of Azula because she's like usually so perfect and precise and competent. But in this season, we get sort of one failure after another, starting with like her not officially killing Aang. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So she doesn't kill Aang. She um, doesn't get Zuko at the Boiling Rock. She messes up with them at the Western Air Temple. She lets them escape. Like she's been sort of on this losing streak and her confident facade like gets sort of called out or I think she starts to have this sort of imposter syndrome going on. Um, that culminates in her starting to break down when Ozai's like, nope, you're not coming with me. You're you're kind of grounded. Yeah. Or at least that's how she sort of interprets it. Whether or not like he meant it to be that way or as a punishment or not, I don't know. But um, yeah, I think that sort of sparks it. Yeah, her when she, in that scene with her and Ozai at the end, when she says, you, you can't treat me like this. You can't treat me like Zuko. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, you... You have lost it. Damn. Awful. You know, I for for I, the way that I used to remember this was we don't feel like Azula is completely unhinged until she slices her own hair off. 
mm-hmm. but nope. She's been this way for a while, and it almost yeah. happens at the Boiling Rock when yes, when the gang escapes and uh, May and Ty Lee kind of, uh, you know, yeah, cross her or betray her. Yeah, it's... That's when she really, I think, that's the almost the final straw. And then everything that follows is just this manifestation of her own like inner demons just preventing her from getting anything done. Yeah, you, I think her brain breaks a little bit there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, I wonder before that too, like, like you mentioned her essentially lying about the Avatar being dead. Like she did that as manipulation to like, Hold one over Zuko, mm-hmm. but that might have been kind of nerve wracking for her too, right? Like, unless everything works out perfectly, like that also is her fault, and she's been keeping information from the Fire Lord that the Avatar is still alive. Mm-hmm. And then when Zuko straight up tells Ozai, "Yeah, no, Azula was the one that did that," and you know the Avatar is still alive. Yeah, nowhere else to hide through your lies. Like you yep. just got caught. I am surprised at the lack of consequence that Azula then faces. Ozai continues to take out his anger at Zuko in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it kind of backfires when Zuko redirects his lightning. But it's it's odd to me that he didn't just go off and, you know, I don't want to say punish Azula, but just at least confront her about this. Like, is this all true? You know, is the Avatar actually still alive? What in the world? Why didn't you take care of this? Blah, 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 that stuff. Yeah. I feel like Ozai sees Azula so much as himself. Mm-hmm. Sure. He won't be critical of her. It right. really doesn't matter what she does. Yeah. Sure. And he understands her motives. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, to screw over Zuko. I, I would mm-hmm. do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the episode ends with Ozai announcing he's relinquishing the name, the Fire Lord. And donning his new name. Yeah. The Phoenix King. What were your thoughts about that? I, so there's a great shot in this, similar to earlier when he's like walking over the map of the world that was very Mm -hmm. cool. It sort of pulls up and he is above like this golden phoenix on the floor. Mm -hmm. So it, it sort of builds up to him making the name in an interesting way. I think it's so pretentious and self involved. I think that's why I like it. It's stupid, and that's what makes it good. <laughs> yes. Like, he's taking it so seriously, and any onlooker would be like, Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so they're not able to find Aang after confront or consulting with June in the Shear Shoe. The, the remaining gang then pivots to go look for Iroh, which is a really, really... I think it's a pretty clutch moment that Zuko thinks that quickly on his feet. Yeah. To then go try to find Iroh. Um, especially because of how like Iroh's whole escape went down and all of that stuff, right? Zuko tried to go get him during the day of Black Sun and just came across this empty cell. So there was Iroh's been shrouded in mystery for a really long time now. Um, so it's cool that now we know we're about to to get back to him. And then Aang has obviously, with Momo, gone off to this lion turtle, which we don't know that it's a lion turtle at the start of this episode. And Aang embarks on what I think is a really cool kind of uh, spiritual connecting point with many of his past lives, mm-hmm. um, which is something that, you know, I just wish that we had explored more consistently. Mm-hmm. I know we get Roku a lot, Um 
But if you think about the context of the whole series, Aang doesn't really make that many trips to the spirit world. Um, and he doesn't ever think to reach back further than Avatar Roku when he's trying to consult his past lives, with the exception of the the one time where Kyoshi kind of takes over his own body. Right. Um, and that Aang did not go searching for that. Yeah, Kiyoshi shows up when she wants to talk to that you. Was, that was Kiyoshi <laughs> setting the record straight. Um, yeah. But I was I was very, very pleasantly surprised with each of these different avatar and past life interactions. I agree. I think in the past, I have been very critical of Roku. Like, you have to do something. Like, yes. No yeah. But yeah. that is... The problem is Aang keeps putting it off. There is one decision that has to be made, and he's like, well, I'll get to it later. We'll wait till after the comet. He's so afraid of being decisive. As much as it's kind of like nothing advice, it is also what Aang needs to hear. Well, and I also think we have seen, we saw that whole arc of Roku's story, right? Yeah. In this episode, too, we hear... Roku's regret, like deep regret at not doing anything. Mm -hmm. So I think it also makes sense because that's Roku's lived experience. Roku didn't didn't do enough when he should have. Right. And therefore we lost an entire quarter, essentially, if we think of the four nations as divided equally, air quotes around that. We lost a quarter of this culture. Um that's yeah. a pretty big fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the way they paint it, I'm I do wonder like how was he not decisive? He he made it like extremely clear to Ozai like if you do anything, you're done. But so, that's the thing. That's still putting it off. That's like okay, yeah. you get one more chance. So it's True. essentially a slap on the wrist. His regret was not taking care of it then and there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but he wouldn't have been a very good. I don't know. Like he wouldn't have been a. Very, I don't feel like a good avatar. Well, who knows? I guess we yeah. get to. To see, play with that a little bit more with like the Kyoshi novels and stuff like that, mm -hmm. that that decisiveness and like justice that you decide to dole out because that would have its own consequences, right? Yeah, if you just murdered absolutely. the head of the fire, like the Fire Lord. I do think that's the beauty of this show. Each avatar can can make all of the best decisions they possibly can. There are still consequences. The next one has to clean up. Yeah, yeah, that was very well said. Whose uh, advice did you like the best? Or, uh, like the least. I mean, I love Kiyoshi's. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> and I it's do. so funny, Aang's reaction. I know, he, he has a pretty strong reaction to her when, honestly, I think she kind of gave the best advice. Yeah. Um, like, what yeah. did she say? Like, something about justice. It's a very yeah. good line. Only, it's like, yeah. only justice can bring peace. Can bring you peace or something. Yeah. Only justice will bring peace. I knew I shouldn't have asked Kiyoshi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. And and she doesn't say, like, you have to murder him, right? Nope. Right. She says, like, if you need to, you need to. But yeah, basically, whatever you need to do to bring justice is what you have to do. And, and I think, you know, the weird thing is that I feel like all four of the Avatar's past lives are kind of saying the same thing. For lack of a better, for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah. I think all of them are basically just telling Aang that he can't do nothing, which is what Aang would like to do. Mm -hmm. Aang would like for this problem to just go away by itself, but it can't, right? 
And it's his duty as the avatar to take care of it mm-hmm. in whatever form or whatever way that that means. Nobody is straight up saying, you have to murder this guy. You have to kill him. Aang just assumes that that's the only way because that's all he knows, right? I, I don't know. You know, you, you think about Kurik saying actively shape your own your own destiny because he was a, quote, go with the flow type of an avatar. Aang's a pretty go with the flow type of an avatar right now, too. And that makes it a whole lot of sense. I think the, the one piece of advice that I was the most refreshed by was from, uh, from Avatar Yang Chen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because Aang's whole thing is that what he may have to do is counter to what his culture is. And Avatar Yang Chen basically says, your culture is to the world. And if you don't do this, there won't be a world for you to, to, to serve and to, to be whole with anymore. So you have to do this. You have to put these things that you think aside in order to get this done. And it's just brilliant. It's brilliant. It's so good. They tie her in really well in the Kiyoshi books, mm-hmm. especially with that. Like, it's interesting advice because it's also sort of like her downfall. Like, mm-hmm. she talks about being so caring of humanity that she ignores like the spiritual a lot, sure. which ends up being a lot of what Kurik has to deal with after. Sure. So that. That's advice that makes sense to me, but is also maybe not the most reflective from her is like, I mean, it's not, it's still great advice, but it makes sense. She is a person who is so connected to the people of the world. Sure. So of course she's going to say as the avatar, you cannot give them up. Because your sole duty is to the world. Here is my wisdom for you. Selfless duty calls you to sacrifice your own spiritual needs and do whatever it takes to protect the world. It's interesting that, like, nobody explicitly says you have to kill the Fire Lord. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But Aang does say, like, when he's talking to the Lion Turtle, he's like, all of my past lives are telling me that I have to take (laughs) his life. So it's that sort of, like, they're not saying it, but they're saying it. He's reading between the lines. But I think it also highlights, like, like, he's making his perception, his reality, right? He's giving yes. him that choice. Yeah. And I, I also think, okay, so he's what, 13? Because when we started, he was 12, and it's been about a year, so he's now almost 13. As a 13-year-old kid, of course you're going to fixate on that worst-case thing. The thing that mm-hmm. you don't want to do the most is the thing that you feel like you have to do. And he also doesn't have the full arsenal of tools at his disposal to handle these things. Like right. That's why he tapped into his past lives in desperation. That's why he had the conversation that he had with the lion turtle, who then ultimately gives him, you know, the one tool that Aang was missing, or at least the one ability that Aang was missing um, that he didn't even know he could have. Yeah. It It's wild that this, well, as far as we know, this is like the first time a lion turtle has directly addressed an avatar since... Juan, right? Yep. Since our yeah, very, that's true. Um, so I wonder what it is about Aang that they felt they needed to intervene. Maybe the lion turtle was afraid of being involved in this scorched earth situation. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of self-preservation there, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Like, there's some, yeah, some future sight. Yeah, I would venture that that probably is the case, you know? If, if it is true that they, Evan, like you proposed, they exist in their own plane, maybe they're able to see... 
either different futures or even different pasts or different versions of the present. And they can see what would happen if they stay idly or if they remain idle and not involved. And then they can also see what happens if they intervene. You know, maybe that's, again, part of their own self-preservation, like you had just said. But it, it does make a, a lot of sense. And it also then makes a lot of sense then as to why we wouldn't have seen or interacted with any of the lion turtles at any other point except for this one. Like, they had to step in because this was the only thing that could be done in order to prevent Ozai from doing what he was going to do. I also really like the idea that Aang sort of has that spiritual connection either to animals or to just the universe as a whole, because he sort of calls out right when he's meditating and asking Momo, like, what would you do? Yeah. Um, in that final meditation scene before. So it, I, I kind of like the idea that he sort of calls out and his call is answered. Fun fact, the voice actress for um, Avatar Yang Chen mm -hmm. is the same as Hama. Ah, that. Oh, really? That makes sense. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. that similar. Mm -hmm. Wow. I heard her talk and I had to look it up just because <laughs> I'm, an, I'm a dork like that. And uh, yep. Yep, it is. That's awesome. There's also Kevin Michael Richardson voices the lion turtle, and he was uh, Haru's dad. Yep. And now doing their own version of the lion turtle is the previously on podcast's own Maxwell Anderson. <laughs> yeah, how does that go? Um... In the era before the avatar, <laughs> we bent not to the elements, but the energy within ourselves. Within ourselves, <laughs> I was gonna say we went a Sean little. Connery. We went a little, yeah. Sean Connery there. <laughs> I must ask you a question, Avatar. <laughs> well done, Max. Well done. I just had to put you on the spot. Oh, it's so much more epic than that, though. It's you have to clip that in. Speaking of extra boomy, on the flip side of this coin, <laughs> right? <laughs> you like that? That was good. On the flip side of this episode, we also get this reestablished connection between the gang and all of their old masters. What was, what was your, I know, again, I know we've all seen this before, but this time, what was your gut reaction to, to seeing these, these characters again? Oh, it always makes me so happy. Yeah. So good. So good. I, I, in my notes, I literally wrote out the, the music and that goes in the, in that part, the dum, 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 oh man, I, it's, it's so good. I, I think that brief moment encapsulates why I love this show so much. It's, it's, there's not a wasted character and there's so much development that it'd be such a waste if we didn't get to see these masters again. So to flesh it out more to flesh out their secret society. All the little bits that have been building up to this feel like such a relief to get to see. What do you guys think of Boomy noticing that only Momo is gone? <laughs> yeah, uh, Brandon has something to say about that. Because <laughs> you said there was a theory, right? Yeah, I'm going to blow this thing wide open. Boomy is responsible for the lion turtle and Momo was his agent. <laughs> Okay. okay. This is from. Oh, no. This is from. Uh, we open the door. <laughs> this is. This is from Max and Evan's favorite website, Reddit. Um, it says the evidence is all here if you just look. 
This is who is this? This is uh. Ab- is, is it a picture of Charlie Day with the crazy strings behind him? Like uh, I have no idea. Pepe Sylvia. Pepe Sylvia. This, this is uh. This was posted two years ago by user Absalom Quinn. Oh. That says, Bumi has a fascination with Momo, shown in the gang's first meeting with him. This is the linchpin, and later in the finale episodes, Bumi again comments on Momo's whereabouts. We'll get back to this in just a moment. Actually, we're going to get to this right now. Um, <laughs> oh my God, how long is this? It's long. Oh, wow. Is there a too long didn't read at the bottom? Nope. Jeez. It's just too long. Oh, the evidence can be summarized like this. Bumi is functionally insane. He's a genius without with out-of-the-box thinking, an agent of an organization with a white flower for a sign that closely resembles the pattern on the back of the lion turtle, and he has relationships with long-eared animals. He is also closely tied with both Aang and ostensibly the lion turtle. What's that, you ask? Closely tied to the lion turtle? We'll get back to this soon. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. This is the summary? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not the summary. Oh, my God. Man, it's... Okay, so... This tells you why people make podcasts about this show. <laughs> it's because they take <laughs> one little comment and then dive into a whole yep. conspiracy theory. <laughs> this is so dumb. Um, <laughs> How many upvotes does this have? Was this a popular theory? 96% upvoted. It says, Boomy told Momo that he needed his help to get the lion turtle to Aang. Boomy's plan was to send the animals of the earth to seek out the lion turtle and have it track Aang through Momo. Evidence of this can be seen through the many animals that Momo interacts with, but never really assaults beyond a few bugs. Thus, the relationship with long-eared animals. He talked to Momo and had the lemur send the animals to find the most legendary of them all. Oh my god. All right, all right, all This right. was the reason for his concern when most of the gang showed up at Ba Sing Se, but Momo wasn't with them. And his relief when he heard that Aang and the lemur were together. Finally, he reasoned the lion turtle had been found and had found in turn, or, and had in turn found Aang. Finally, the plan he hatched over a year ago has come to fruition. One can only imagine him having to feign surprise when Aang recounted how the lion turtle showed up out of nowhere when he knew the whole time that it would happen. But it was mm-hmm. probably just passed, uh, passed off for Boomy being crazy as usual. In reality, it was the most mad genius plan ever hatched by an old man who was helping the boy who had been his good friend. Okay. Okay. <laughs> But, all right, so, well, I don't think I have any follow-ups. <laughs> I, I have one. I have one follow-up, which is, stop it. Get some help. <laughs> but I think I think what they're trying to get at is something that we mentioned at the very beginning, or when that episode happened, um, when, when Boomy's, like, captured and is like, Aang, when you do face the Fire Lord, I hope you think like a mad genius. Um or maybe that was in the very first episode we see Boomy. But either way, it does, it does, it is a very Boomy plan in the sense that like nobody could have posited this plan. Right. I don't think Boomy has to be involved with no. like telephoning the lion turtle. He's <laughs> given Aang the advice he needs to seek out that kind of answer. Mm-hmm. I think that's the furthest I would push it. <laughs> you know what, guys? You say potato, I say potato. <laughs> you say potato i say grand lion turtle king boomy conspiracy <laughs> there was a, a much more succinct version of that somewhere that i will find and i will share it with well you. in yours okay yeah the yeah i guess you said there's a theory that boomy knew ang was gone so he asked about momo that was intentional. yeah okay. can you imagine 
being a writer on this show thinking, <laughs> oh, this is a funny joke. People will like this. And then hopping on the internet a few years later to see this absolute chaos that you've created. Uh, it's so good. And they're like, yeah, that's that's what we meant. <laughs> yeah, sure. Do we want to talk about the Boomy flashback a little bit? Yeah, yeah what a part. cool moment. What a cool moment. Walk us through it. One one detail that I noticed that I thought was really cool, it seemed like he's lost a little bit of muscle mass in the the coffin thing. Like he wasn't quite as beefy as like season one boomy. Right. Ooh. I thought it was neat. Yeah, you would I mean you would kind of understand that because he's likely been there for since what episode was that? Was that wasn't Return to Omashu, was it? Yeah. Yeah, it's in like the beginning of season two. two. Yeah. And he's stuck in there, you know, uh, presumably a little, a little bit of time before that, and then the entirety of the show after that. You know, I'm just confused. How, how did he go to the bathroom? <laughs> how did he eat? He's like dangling there. They would probably give him food, but and water, but no, that's I, a great just, question. I'm concerned about the hygiene. They had a water bender there. They had Hama. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the return of the piss bending. <laughs> and of course the question is, can earthbenders poop bend? <laughs> so much iron in there. <laughs> oh god. Anyway. Uh let's let's not. Yeah, no. I take it back. Uh it's there forever. I just love how different it is from the gang's experience that he has this just resounding success with the day of black sun. All on his own. Yeah. And then he's like, so what did you guys do during the eclipse? And it's like... Oh, nothing. <laughs> very depressing. They, like... Just brush it off. Ended up with a lot of, like, prisoners of war, and yeah. it was all for nothing. <laughs> yeah. I think it's time to discuss the reunion. Oh, boy. Oh, my gosh. I cannot not cry during during this reunion. During Iroh and Zuko's embrace. I do love that even when like they're setting it up, the music is happening, all this Zuko goes into Iroh's tent and and he's sleeping. <laughs> yeah. That's so, so cute. Sweet. He's an you old know? man, of course. I, I just it is so perfect that that is, you know, the the first way that we see Iroh again after, you know, not having seen him for half of a season. It's it's Perfect for his character. It's perfect to break up the tension of the moment. And it's also completely different than most of these kind of reunions with father figures, right? Mm -hmm. When Sokka and Katara see their dad, you know, he's planning something uh, for their uh, for their water tribe fleet or whatever it is. And it's just a, a perfect way, I think. And pretty much a 180 from... Zuko's own reunion with his father. Or not reunion, yeah, but totally. confrontation. Yeah. Well, that reminds me, Zuko has a great Freudian slip here where he's uh, like, how are you going to defeat the Father Lord? Yeah. Can Don't you, you mean the Fire Lord? That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> so good. But that's also one of those moments, too, where I'm like, why, why did they include that? Maybe it was like just a voice acting slip up. I and wondered, yeah. Keep it. I think it's great. I mean, it feels in character to me for Zuko. Like, yeah. it is his dad, and he has issues with his father. 
like Father Lord. he's as much thinking about like the grand like world scale we need to defeat the fire lord to save the world he's also like my dad sucks <laughs> <laughs> i like that again it's like a good team huddle that they have when they're planning and they're talking about destinies and what they're going to do and it sets it up perfectly to spread everybody into the wind to do their own uh, missions um i once iroh hears that ozai is going to scorch the earth in the fire in the earth kingdom i'm still i'm confused by his motivation to still go save bossing say because if the other missions fail then it's not going to matter if you liberate bossing say so i i just wonder priorities wise i don't know did he let his personal attachment for bossing say and like his past get in the way of actually doing something that would be more helpful I wonder with how spiritually connected Iroh is if he understands Aang is okay and going to be there in some capacity. Mm -hmm. And he's already been pretty resolute that he can't be the one to take on Ozai anyway, right? Right. But like to help with the airships or something like that, I don't know. Um, It would have been really nice to have a firebender on some of those airships to, to take them down. That's true. I think there is like a deep destiny thing to this though. Like I don't yeah. I don't think when he says he had a vision about taking Bossing Say, I think he legitimately, like growing up, had a clear spiritual vision that he would do that, mm-hmm. which I think is also interesting. Like he just misinterpreted that for years and is why he became like this like horrible war criminal general guy right yeah that's why he tries to take bossing say in the first place and so i think he knows this is what that vision meant i think he truly believes he has to do this okay i like that yeah did you want to talk more about the about the embrace i guess there's not too much to talk about it's just such a good scene it's perfect i i say this about a lot of scenes but i think it is one of my favorite scenes (laughs) like like zuko's regret and his him tearing up out of both eyes so you know it's a big deal (laughs) usually he only cries out of the one um i only look at that now because of how much (laughs) you (laughs) ingrained it into us brandon um yeah and and then iroh's like i was never mad i was only sad that i that you'd lost your way ah and i think when iroh says to zuko that he found his way back all by himself. Mm. That's the most, in my view, that's the most powerful moment mm-hmm. because I don't want to say that Iroh abandoned Zuko, but when Iroh escaped from prison and, you know, went on his own path and forged his own way to try to uh, reassemble or assemble the white Lotus to mount this defense you know, there could have been some correspondence with Zuko, I guess. Um, but yeah, Zuko was largely left to just figure out these final crucial parts of his own destiny by himself, largely by himself. Um, so when Iroh reaffirms that Zuko made all the right choices, it's like, that's that's the part that gets me. Yeah. You know, not how quickly Iroh is to forgive Zuko but just how adamant Iroh is that Zuko did this by himself. And that that's the, that's the biggest thing. 
I didn't really think about it in terms like that, Brandon, where it was Iroh, Iroh abandoning Zuko in the Fire Nation when he escaped, right? Basically saying, like, I my nephew's a lost cause. Because he wouldn't have, well, maybe not, right? He he was trying to guide him and gave him the crown prince like speech and stuff like that. But but he doesn't try to meet up with him. So if that's not a signal to be like, we're going our separate ways. Right. For all he knows, Zuko is still the crown prince mm-hmm. sitting in the Fire Nation. Mm-hmm. Or Zuko might be on one of the airships. Yeah. Like getting ready to attack. True. You know, that would be... Oh, my God. Imagine that battle. Jeez. Ozai, Azula, and Zuko versus the White Lotus. As they're scorching down, like getting ready to take Bossing Say again and just burn it to the ground. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I think this episode ends on a literal cliffhanger where uh, Ozai is on that cliff in front of his ships and he starts monologuing to no one. Yeah. <laughs> just, this this world will die in fire and be reborn <laughs> from the ashes. And he's like talking to no one on the edge of a cliff, like just, <laughs> oh, he's so full of himself. My yeah. God. Yeah. If anyone's going to do it, it's going to be Ozai. Yeah. And then it arrives. The comet finally comes. The moment foreshadowed on the solar eclipse episode in the first season is here. And that's going to do it for part one of our season three finale episode. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion so far, as we certainly have. We'll be back next week with part two of our discussion concluding Sozin's Comet. We're now live on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for at previous.pod on Facebook and at previous underscore pod on Twitter. Give us a like or a follow and interact with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the series as we keep the dialogue going. A big thanks to my co-hosts Evan and Max for being a part of the podcast. We'll see you soon. Yip, yip.